Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. This podcast is my service commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. It strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews is simply my way of giving back to AA that which was so freely given to me. My guest on today's podcast, Jim H., is one of those alcoholics whose unabated drinking created serious medical problems amidst all the other destruction of career and family. He did not drink much in high school, but in college he was a tie-dyed-in-the-wool hippie with a penchant for marijuana, hashish, LSD, and psilocybin mushrooms. He used amphetamines to achieve academic success but it was alcohol that took him down rapidly during his early career as an attorney. He became a daily drinker and was ultimately hospitalized with alcohol-induced cardiomyopathy that was destroying his heart muscle. But somehow he survived through white-knuckle sobriety until he felt better. Then he drank again. Jim repeated this pattern over and over until 1996, when diminishing liver function and gastrointestinal distress made it impossible to nourish his skeletal body. His bottom reached, he crawled into a treatment facility, and shortly thereafter, into AA. I met Jim in his earliest days of AA nearly 25 years ago. As with all newcomers, I had no idea whether this very sick man would make it but he kept coming back to the same meetings I attended. I got to know him and see demonstrated his ardent desire to stay sober. Sponsored by a good friend of mine, Jim worked the steps and continued to stay in the middle of the program. His physical health was restored. Given the opportunity, Jim has shared about the bodily destruction that alcohol can cause, even in the early years of the disease. Were anyone who's slipped to hear Jim's story, they might be moved to make it back to the rooms of AA sooner than later. The importance of his message cannot be understated. This is the 29th interview in this podcast. I'm certain you will find it of immense interest. So please enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my longtime good friend and AA brother, Jim H. My name's Jim and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jim. Great to see you on Zoom, that is. Great to hear you on audio, that is. I'm so glad you could be here today to uh, join me on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You're actually not in Texas here with me as you normally would be, but you're out in... Mountain View, California. Mountain View, California. God, how, what's it like out there today? Freaking gorgeous. Is it really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I came from the heat and the rain, and the temperature here during the midday is normally around 72. Uh, oh, my god! Not a cloud in the sky and zero humidity. Yeah, yeah. You and I were talking before about what a clear connection you've got, too, uh, that, that the Wi-Fi is impeccable out there. And I would expect it to be with Google. Is Google actually headquartered in Mountain View? Yes, Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a kind of a Google company town. Is it really? Yeah. Well, I know that you've listened to many of these AA Recovery Interview podcasts. Before we get started, I just wanted to get your feedback on them and, and what you think about this particular approach. I think it's a great approach. I, there are quite a few other resources out there where they have mainly AAs talking with each other and things like that, but never one really where people just kind of tell their stories and and respond to questions. And as we were talking a while back on my trip back east, driving from Houston to uh, Washington, Mm D.C., I listened to a bunch of these. And, yeah. you know, some of the folks that you did that I knew already and some mm-hmm. I did not. Yeah. Even the ones that I knew, I found out new things. And it's just a very relaxing. It's very interesting to me. Something that I can get into and listen to for concentrate on without multitasking. Yeah, that's good to hear. I appreciate that feedback. Actually, you're going to be interview number 29 you and I have known each other since you first came into the program, I guess. And when what year was that? 
That was in 1996. My sobriety date was July 31st. Yeah, so I met you really soon after you came into the program. Do you remember that? Well, my first meeting was Mm -hmm. the meeting at Holy Name, the investors group. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's where I had been told to go by the folks at... And they told me to go there and get a sponsor. And so that's what I did. And I sat next to John and Uh I ended up picking Sam for no particular reason uh, as my sponsor. Mm -hmm. And so then what Sam did was take me to a whole bunch of meetings. And I'd already picked him as my sponsor and he's the one that Uh took me to Rosewood. Right. Okay. So I do remember one of the first times I actually recognized you was at Rosewood, I guess it was. Yes. Yeah. That's a long time ago. The beautiful thing about it is you and I have been going to the same men's meetings, the same one or two men's meetings a week, every week with consistency for virtually all that time, haven't we? That's right. You know, the first time I remember you was we were at the Sunshine Men's Group. Right. We were sitting out there and they were having a group conscience, which mm-hmm. I that's when I understood what a group conscience was, right? about whether or not to bar a member because there had been a fight. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you and I were talking about that. You know, I was looking at you as super experienced, and you had said, well, I don't know if I've ever encountered a situation like this before. And yeah. So that's that's when I remember you. That was a meeting that I went to virtually every week for many, many years, and it moved around a little bit. And I remember that of the very, very few nights that I missed that meeting, the fight actually took place between two guys who normally did not come to that group. They, they were friends of one or two regulars who came. And so afterwards, for whatever reason, they exchanged words with each other. And the one guy just punched the other guy in the jaw or whatever it was. The group conscience was to decide that neither one of those men was welcome back at that meeting for the fighting that they did. And uh, But that's the only time, Jim, uh, I've seen that there were actually blows exchanged in an AA meeting. So... Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. No, and, and for me, it was like I had numerous meetings under my belt at that time, but I was really new. I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting experience. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and so how much different was hearing that story than hearing the stories about people fighting while they're drinking and out drunk? Well, you know, uh, I, I actually didn't know that many folks that got drunk and fought. Yeah. The guys I hung around with were pretty much kind of like me. Mm-hmm. And we would go out and do some stupid things. My best friend and I were leaving a bar in downtown Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And it was late at night and we were hammered. But we left and we got rolled by a couple of Marines from the Marine base. <laughs> oh, no. And they cold cocked my friend and this actually caused him some significant eye damage. Oh, and, no. you know, they just sat on me uh, uh-huh. while the, you know, my friend and the other guy went at it. And oh. then, then the Marines took off. And, you know, they just basically they didn't like the way they looked. I think they didn't like the way I looked uh-huh. more than him because I had kind of long hair, and whatever. And, and they just decided it would be fun to go punch us out. <laughs> Gee, I guess it was must have been fun for them, not for you, though. Yeah, huh? that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> We're kind of picking up the story in the middle. Since you just shared something about drinking at a point which maybe you weren't an alcoholic yet, could we take a look back at what life was like for you from maybe the point where you were a kid and how you transitioned into drinking socially or with friends? Sure. Uh, I, I had a... Great home environment, uh, mm-hmm. good family, great parents. Lived in a really nice area. I lived. I grew up in Pittsburgh, although oh, I was yeah. born in D.C. and I lived uh-huh. in Pittsburgh. And my dad, it was a bomber pilot in World War II. Never saw service, but flew B seventeen. Never mm-hmm. saw action. I mean, and mm-hmm. it, but so they were the cocktail party generation, you know. And we lived in a place that was at the time way outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, great little community, but way outside. And so Mm -hmm. there wasn't much to do. And so people got together and they played bridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember every New Year's Day, they, people would come over. My parents' friends would come over and they would have a 
football watching kind of a party. Mm-hmm. And so early on, I associated drinking, watching my parents drink with good times and frivolity. Mm. And I never experienced any adverse consequences at all from my parents drinking. Hmm. But I started to mix sodas. And I would mix cream soda with root beer or orange soda with grape soda because I saw my parents <laughs> mixing drinks. Oh, my gosh. And I wanted to do that. And as I became a teenager, you know, we started to sneak beers and we would have some whiskey and Mm -hmm. he would fill the bottle up with water. I I liked the way it made me feel. And one time, you know, someone had stolen a couple of bottles of scotch and I had watched my dad make scotch sours. And so... I made everybody scotch sours. We got my parents were out for the evening, and we got hammered. Wow! Parents came home, and one of my friends was passed out on the garage floor, where people had thrown up all over the house. We had to go to the emergency room. And then one time, I was at a uh, Christmas party with my humanities teacher was giving, Uh and I got caught by the cops with a six pack, and so got taken in for that. Oh my. Uh, and then I went to college, and in college, uh, I wanted to be a hippie. And yeah. so drinking was secondary and actually kind of looked down on. Right. When I got to college, I found the guy with the longest hair I uh-huh. could find, and I knew about marijuana, and uh-huh. I knew I wanted to try it because hippies tried it, and I really yeah. desperately wanted to be a hippie. So we, you know, I walked up to him and we found marijuana and, you know, I was off to the races and I did, Yeah, I drank, but it was mainly, we smoked a ton of dope. So I wanted to just unpack a few more of the things that may have contributed later on. So the way you transitioned to telling me about college makes me think that perhaps you were mostly involved with alcohol during high school or did you drink during high school or what was your experience during high school? You know, we, I really didn't drink much, not for want of trying. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live, like I said, we lived in a kind of a self-contained community that Mm -hmm. was far from a city center. Uh, There wasn't even a a real mall nearby. I mean, there were grocery stores. Pennsylvania has state stores to sell. That's the only way you could buy liquor was to go to a state store. And the only way you could buy beer was to go to a beer distributor or you had to go to a bar. And Uh so, uh, you know, I knew of people that had contacts and always seemed to be able to get liquor. And I knew Mm -hmm. once I got to college, the folks that were younger than me, my friends, you know, Uh were were able to get beer and kegs. But we never were. I mean, Uh it was a really big deal if someone showed up with a case of Uh beer. And so, you know, we I just didn't have the opportunity to to drink all that much. And so I did not. I mean, it was a a rare occasion and, and to be thoroughly enjoyed when someone you know, snuck a bottle or got some alcohol. Yeah, I get it. So the circumstances were such that you, even if you had wanted to, the opportunity just didn't really present itself uh, to any great degree until you got to college. What's interesting about the interviews I've been doing is I identify with so many different parts of people's stories. And I didn't really start drinking and using marijuana until I graduated from high school and got to college. And then it was, you know, Katie bar the door. But uh, I had exposure to marijuana soon after I had first started drinking. Uh, it sounds like you did too. The first time I smoked marijuana was in my senior year in high school. Uh-huh. And I was at a party where someone had it. Uh-huh. And I tried it and nothing happened. Absolutely huh. nothing. nothing. Which, and actually <laughs> back back then, we used to call it smoking rope. Yeah. And because literally it was about one step above smoking rope. <laughs> right. uh, it wasn't until later on in college that we got decent marijuana. It was all usually pretty, re- very low power. Yeah. 
And you'd, you'd smoke like as much until your lungs burned and then you get a headache and you get hungry. And that was about it. Yeah, that's that's not a whole lot of fun. I was able to start with my older sister and her first husband way, way back then. And he was kind of an aficionado of marijuana and hashish. He always liked hashish, a lot of hashish. And so by the time I was 18, 19, going into college, I had some exposure to something a little bit better than rope. So you get to college and you get access to much more available marijuana and booze and other things like that, huh? Yeah. And we had a lot of hashish, too. And mm -hmm. I much preferred that. Alcohol was always there. And, and for me, alcohol was like an accompaniment to marijuana. Mm -hmm. I was a legacy, I guess you could, they called it in the day, for a fraternity, Alpha Tau Omega, because my father had been one and my grandfather before him. And, of course, they came out and wanted me to pledge. Mm -hmm. We all looked down at the on the juicers, us hippies. Really? Yeah. That's what's so crazy about being an alcoholic because of all wow. the things that I was concerned that might take me down, because I knew doing drugs was uh -huh. dangerous. I w would never have believed it was yeah. alcohol. And so I never pledged the fraternity because all they did was drink. Wow. In college, it's not that I didn't get drunk, but it was usually accompanied by something else. And the idea of only being able to use alcohol was appalling yeah. to me. You know, that's not so different from my story, too, because the state university I went to had very, very active Greek organizations. And I remember my friends who were who were drinkers but not pot smokers, they all seemed to pledge. But because I was more involved with pot and the fraternities at that time were heavily oriented towards beer and, and other alcohol, like you, I, there was no real strong attraction for me to, to do that because I thought those guys are really pretty sloppy and, and they're mean to each other because they're all drunk. And me, I'll enjoy my marijuana, but those guys aren't going to do that, so I might as well not join. Was that kind of your thinking as well? Yeah, and, you know, so I was in college from 69 to 73. Back then, most of the fraternities were still yeah. what we call straight guys. The drug scene was moving uh -huh. into fraternities, but it hadn't moved in that, yeah, as much as it eventually did. Right. Yeah, they were just straight guys, and I didn't want to be a mm -hmm. straight guy. I didn't want to be one of the short-haired, you know, drinking, you know, white shirt-wearing kind of guys. Yeah. How did you become a hippie? I think my influence there was that I had my father's side of the family lived in California. Uh-huh. I loved everything I had read about California and the summer of love out here, which was 67 and the eight Ashbury scene. Mm -hmm. What really got me into it most was the music. You know, mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix was my favorite, uh, but I liked, I liked it all. And, mm -hmm. uh, I remember Jimmy, my favorite mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix song was If Six Was Nine, which is white collar conservative flashing down the street, pointing at me, Hoping my kind will drop and die. You can't dress like me. That's great. That's great. And that was it. It's, it's like that was your own personal you know, anthem. And I huh? got that was my at my funeral. I'm going to have it played. Seriously. Oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. Did you were you in a band or did you play any instruments at the time or were you just a listener? No, I've. In fact, I've got uh, one of my son's guitars mm -hmm. behind me and i am still freaking trying to play i started to play i i started to try and learn the guitar when i was yeah, like 13 yeah. uh and i have never progressed even to being able to yeah, do a bar chord yeah. uh because i'll play it for about six weeks and get yeah. frustrated with it but no i was never in a band I was wanted to be any any of the people I knew who were hippies, and I I guess I'm kind of I was uh, I was a, la a latter stage. My older sister was much more of a hippie than I was, and I kind of came in on the tail end of that. But I didn't cut my hair for several years, and uh, those people who know me know that my hair doesn't go down, but it goes out to the sides. So I had one of those almost like an afro when I was uh, when I was in college. But um, it seems like a lot of the people who like that kind of music. Uh, they either taught themselves how to play and were bands or they were so stoned they never got the ambition to do it and just enjoyed listening better. I guess I was one of those guys. <laughs> no, I always tried. I would have loved to have seen you with that hair. I loved hair like that. My hair was straight 
parted in the middle, and I had it down. It went well past my shoulders. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so you were a certifiable hippie at that point. Yeah. How did you do in college, and in what ways did being a hippie help or hurt you? I did fabulous in college. Really? I graduated with a 392 in my major. And for my first two and a half years, I carried a straight 4.0 average. I was in the honors program in economics. You know, it started out when I first got there, everyone told me how hard college was. And so my first term, I worked my ass off, formed study Uh groups and everything, and I got a 4.0. And I did the same thing the next term and got a 4.0. And by the third term, which was the spring term, I back off a little bit, and I still got huh. a 4.0. And so for the rest of my college career, it was seeing how little work <laughs> I could do and still get a 4.0. And I mainly attribute my grades, especially in the last couple of years, to amphetamines. Oh, okay. You know, I would miss class and then not do the assignments, and I was blessed with a temporary uh, kind of a transient photographic uh-huh. memory. And so I could go through the books and I could stay up nights in a row. Longest I stayed up was like from oh Monday to God. Friday. And just, you know, and then go in and take the test. And I remember I got questioned because I would reproduce the uh, answers to the test. I would reproduce the section of the book oh it came goodness. from. Wow. And so, but, but, you know, so I graduated with 392. And, and the way being a hippie did it was... You know, my father hated my uh-huh. long hair. My professors mm-hmm. hated my long hair. But it's like, yeah. kiss my ass. You know, yeah. Yeah, I have couldn't. a 4.0. That's the way they that, that I did it. It was defiance. They couldn't deny that, could they? I, you're just a long-haired hippie with uh, with the smarts, I guess. Now, you, you mentioned uh, amphetamines. Okay, so were you a regular or daily uh, pot smoker as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was mainly pot and hashish that we did yeah. every day. I did psychedelics. Uh-huh. It's like when it was good, it was really, really, really good. You're talking about like LSD? Yeah, LSD. It was mainly mm-hmm. LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done psilocybin. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other yeah. story. Uh, in Yellowstone Park, huh. of all things. And uh, peyote, which I did in law school, which was pretty uh-huh. interesting. But I didn't do a lot of them. I think you have to have a very strong kind of ego in mind mm-hmm. to be able to go through that and not lose it. And one of my friends mm-hmm. did. He got to doing it very frequently, and it was just, just tearing mm-hmm. him up. So I guess I did LSD maybe 15-plus times, maybe. I never did LSD. I never did any kind of IV drug. A number of my friends were doing it, and whenever it was offered, I turned it down because I didn't know whether I was one of those type of people who could handle it. But did you ever have in later years those flashbacks that people talk about from the LSD? No. You know, I was lucky. Uh, and That's all it was, I think, was luck. I never had flashbacks. I never had any kind of uh, bad wow. trip. I had Some trips were mm-hmm. better than others. Uh, but never had a, a bad mm. trip at all. Honestly, I had some fabulous experiences. Yeah. The time in Yellowstone I mentioned, I did mescaline when, uh, the March on Washington <laughs> in 1971, yeah. the VVAW, uh-huh. and so there's 200,000 hippies in yeah. Washington, D.C. So, I mean, honestly, I don't regret any of the drugs I did. I regret marijuana mm-hmm. a little bit that I did it so often because I missed out on a lot of things mm-hmm. that I could have done. Yeah. I find that marijuana kind of messed with my decision-making to a certain extent because uh, I was so comfortable not making decisions that when I had to make them, I made them probably based on some of the wrong information. I mean, I think I got through life okay as despite all that, but it's, it's interesting that, that your memories of the LSD or the mushrooms or the peyote or, or marijuana, even for that matter, is not one that is all that negative. No. The only negative I had, like just as an example, Penn State had all these fabulous athletic mm-hmm. facilities that I never really availed myself of. Yeah. Uh, they had lots of other kind of extracurricular things that you could do that yeah. would have been fun. 
But, you know, I was getting stoned and listening to music. Yeah, and you were still getting good grades. So you started out kind of early on, let's say at the age of 18, as a functional drug user, alcohol user, without too many negative consequences then, huh? No, I didn't really have any. You know, I dealt drugs. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Mainly as a way to uh, offset Mm -hmm. the cost uh, of my own uh, things. And, you know, also because it was a counterculture thing to do. It was before it became... Well, it was turning into a business by the end of my time there. Uh But before it was just like I dealt drugs because I could sell some and then turn on all of my friends. So you went from Penn State on to law school. Did you have the same kind of experience in law school where you were able to sail through it without too much trouble? Yeah. I still use amphetamines Mm -hmm. to study. I did not get a 4.0 in law school because law school was... I found it to be several degrees harder than undergrad, wow. but I did well. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I still had the yeah. same memory. Share with me your recollections, Jim, if you would, from getting out of law school to the point at which you first noticed that you had a problem, either with alcohol or drugs and alcohol. Well, I started to turn to alcohol a lot more in law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had been engaged to be married to this girl that I had gone out mm-hmm. with in college, and she broke off that engagement the summer prior to my going to law school. Mm-hmm. And so I was down there in this apartment that we had gotten, or I had gotten mm-hmm. for both of us, and I, it was far away from the law school. It was out in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. Nice apartment, but funky, mm-hmm. funky area. And so I was outside of the student kind of activities right. in law school. Plus, my access to drugs had diminished because I was in a mm-hmm. new environment. I, I didn't know mm-hmm. a lot of people. And also, I didn't have any I didn't have many posse. I right. didn't have any friends. And so that's when I started to drink uh, with a purpose. And I remember I'd buy a, a bottle of whiskey, and I used to do that, drink that at night. It was just me and my dog. This breakup hit me, and I was suffering because of that. The purpose of drinking there was to drown the feelings? Yeah, kind of, and so uh-huh. I could sleep, you know, and, and stuff huh. like that. You know, that, that's when I really started mm-hmm. to drink, mm-hmm. uh, was was in mm-hmm. law school. And it became an end in itself rather than an adjunct to getting high really? on marijuana. And, you know, most of the folks in law school, uh, they smoke marijuana, but it took me a while to have any interaction with them. Uh-huh. And most of them thought I was an asshole because of the way I dressed. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I came in. This was kind of the David Bowie phase. Oh, yeah. I showed up in platform sneakers, <laughs> platform, platform sandals and, and spangle <laughs> socks and this really long hair. Uh-huh. And I, I had this uh, 100-pound dog that I'd take <laughs> oh, to class. Geez. And, you know, and again, I was still yeah. in this thing like, you know, and these, these guys had all gotten their hair cut for law school. Sure. And they were in their little ties and stuff. And I was yeah. like, fuck you. Yeah. You know, you're, all you, if you think you're more than a number, you're mistaken. Yeah. So you had indignation, so to speak, huh? Well, no, more like defiance. Defiance, okay. But I met a couple guys in law school that turned out to be my best friends, but they love to drink too. I see. So that's where I really started. You mentioned uh, amphetamines. Were you doing as many amphetamines in law school as you did in undergrad? And how did they interact with your drinking at that point? I didn't have any real compulsion Mm -hmm. to drink. Uh, at that yeah. time, uh, if it was time for testing, uh, you know, I would do the amphetamines and I would study and I wouldn't drink until after the mm-hmm. tests were over. And so I didn't do as many, but that's because, mm-hmm. you know, we were on a semester system instead of a term system. So we only had, you know, two sets of midterms and final ways a year mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. So that was really the only difference. So is it safe to say that your drug use was going down while your alcohol use was going up? Big time, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We still would smoke mm-hmm. when we could, but a lot of the, the consequences of being caught with marijuana when you're right. in law school had, had impressed itself on I, all of us, me uh-huh. less so than others. But you know, I still smoke, and I still kind yeah. of preferred that, but I found that I didn't prefer smoking alone because that would lead me to bad thoughts about my breakup and stuff like that. 
So you, you found this group of guys that you could hang with while you were smoking marijuana and drinking at that point. How did that drinking then progress or follow you out of law school? And what were your early years like with that in your life? You know, by the third year in law school, I was drinking mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And it still wasn't affecting my academic mm -hmm. performance, but I dropped out a term mm -hmm. of law school. Uh, I was kind of burned out just from uh -huh. taking tests. And I worked for a moving company that moved Xerox machines. Wow. And I don't know quite how I found this job. I don't remember, but I remember I cleared $99 a week. Hmm. You know, you know, these guys were all hard partiers too. So I found another group of younger guys, mm -hmm. uh, including another guy that became, like right. I call him my second best friend. You know, uh -huh. we just drank and drank and drank. And I also met my, uh, first wife when I was in law school. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, she, wasn't a party uh -huh. nearly like me, you know, that took my mind off my first girlfriend, I my see. the college girlfriend. But yeah, it was, I would say that by the time I was in my third year of law school, my decision making about every aspect of my life, other than academic performance, was beginning to be affected by alcohol. Yeah, I found that to be the case as well. It seemed like towards the end of my college years, the drinking and the use of marijuana and other drugs at that time, they affected it to the point that all I wanted to do was get out, earn enough money to be able to continue to do that without any kind of interference. So you went for your final year in law school and then you sat for the bar after that? Yeah, I uh -huh. took the bar exam. You know, I had been so out of the mainstream uh -huh. at law school. I, I think I thought that Someone would then just kind of mm -hmm. call me or knock on my door and say, look, we just thought we understand you graduated from Georgetown and we'd like to hire right. you and pay you a fortune. Uh, so I missed out on the whole wow. interview process while everyone that knew what they were doing and had a whole, all mm -hmm. these job interviews. But I didn't even have one. I got my first job out of law school off a uh, index card that was posted <laughs> on the bulletin board. And it turned yeah. out to be a great job. Uh, but uh, I went to work for an mm -hmm. energy consulting firm as a uh, as an assistant wow. general counsel. And it was a good job. Is that where you first started specializing in that kind of law? Yeah. I, I took oil and gas law. Georgetown only offered one mm -hmm. oil and gas law course. And I liked it. And I, I worked with this energy consulting firm. And that was right when they had oil price regulations. Oh, yeah. It was back in Nixon's time and inflation was crazy. And so he froze uh -huh. prices nationwide. And then they found out or thought that the driving factor in inflation uh -huh. was energy prices. And so what began as a temporary program uh -huh. turned into a permanent one. And every facet of oil, petroleum prices from crude oil uh -huh. all the way up through product, you know, gasoline, right. price, price controlled. And there's this complex administrative nonsense that was around all that. And I, I worked on that and wow. learned that and, you know, I liked it. So you kind of became a specialist from that experience. Did that specialty kind of follow you throughout your, your career? Yeah. So, you know, when I finally moved to Houston, consulting firm had kind of imploded. Yeah. And I went to work with another large blue stocking type of normal uh -huh. law firm. I hated them and they hated me. And uh, Why? Why did they hate you? Because... Because uh, I wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> Why weren't you working? <laughs> There's got to be a thread in here somewhere. Because <laughs> uh, I was, I was uh -huh. drinking most of the time, and you know we had tried to start a uh, energy practice mm -hmm. of another friend of mine. He had formed a law firm, and I worked to work with him, and then we merged, and the crude oil price controls mm -hmm. were getting phased out. And so my whole, you know, all this knowledge that I have oh, was no. basically useless. You know, we couldn't generate. This was not an energy law firm. This was yeah. an East Coast law firm. And, you know, we couldn't generate uh -huh. any legal business. And so they had me move to, they were a federal uh -huh. communications law firm. And so they had me try to move to this kind of media practice, which I didn't, you know, I, uh -huh. I'd never really got. 
this is an example, every Friday uh-huh. they would have a happy hour. And it would be held in this rich panel library, and there'd be the bar set up and the lawyers sitting around talking, and all the secretaries would be having their own happy hour in the little lunchroom. <laughs> well, I was in the lunchroom. After being in the panel study? or <laughs> Yeah, I would, I, would, I would go there and pour my drink and go to the lunchroom. You must have been a popular guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'd go out for uh, drink heavily at lunch, wow. and, you know, stuff like that. It was getting to be a mm-hmm. real problem by that time. And, you know, I had gotten married by that time and mm-hmm. my son was born. And, you know, so I lost my job and he was still an infant. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who received no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You lost your job over the drinking and over the behavior at, at that time. Did anybody confront you with that, or, or did you get an inkling that there was some connection between all that going on and your drinking? No. Uh, I think, honestly, if we had been able to pull in business and been able to pay for ourselves, they wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Because I was always able to pretty right. much put in the hours, even as I was coming into the AA in '96. I was still able to pull in the hours and be a profitable person. So when you say pull in the hours, you're talking about billable hours with clients who are willing to pay you for the work that you're doing. Right. What I couldn't do is obtain clients. Okay. And that's a whole other thing they never tell you about in law school is that, you know, people just don't wander around and think, ah, you know, there's this guy named Jim and I think I'll call him and pay him $300 an hour to do something. The marketing of that is the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. So one of my guests on the show, who also was an attorney, suggested that one of the reasons why there seemed to be a lot of alcoholism within that particular profession is because being a lawyer tends to be a very all-consuming job that you're working very, very long hours and weekends and and all that sort of stuff. So the drink may be the only real release that you have, and so it tends to be overdone. Is that a reasonable statement, or did you find something different? You know, I think that's probably a reasonable statement. I can't say that I was on the Mm -hmm. way there before I got it became an attorney. I get it. Okay. You know, I was already experiencing mm-hmm. horrible hangovers and things like that. And I remember I, I spent a summer while I was in law school, I spent a summer working mm-hmm. for a congressman and I would roll in mm. so hungover and I would kind of say, I got to go to the library and I'd go across the Capitol to the Senate office building to their reading room and pass out. Oh, my. And, you know, wow. stuff like that. But, you know, while I was there, I did good enough work that I turned a one-month internship into all, all, all summer. So in many aspects, like a number of other guests I've had on the show, you were a functional drinker. Uh, would you have labeled yourself an alcoholic? Looking back now at where you were then, would you say you were an alcoholic at that point? Yes. Knowing what I know now, back then, I think I had an inkling that I was a little different. Uh I used to go out with a girl, and she was a registered nurse, and she's the first one that said she thought I was an alcoholic. How many years was that before you actually came into AA? Probably about 15. So somebody who you knew and, and let's say, trusted suggested the problem that you already had and gave it a name. How did you react to that? What did you think about her saying that and about the fact that you might be an alcoholic? Well, it was all, at first, I, I, I didn't believe, I didn't, Yeah. I was indignant. Um, so your friend told you this. Things were going on in the job that might have given you an inkling of the path that you were headed down. So you headed down that path anyway? 
Yeah, I I, I got my first, well, actually my only uh-huh. DWI. I see. At about that time, it was I got put mm-hmm. in the back of a paddy wagon, and the bad part of it was is I had probably a little under a half an ounce mm-hmm. of marijuana mm-hmm. in my pocket. I was, you know, mm-hmm. taken down to the station, and I had tried to develop this way mm-hmm. of getting out of handcuffs. And so I was in the back of the paddy wagon with this uh-huh. guy that was passed out. And I could see my whole uh-huh. career going down the drain uh-huh. with this marijuana. And so I was trying to, I almost had the, I was going to throw it on the floor <laughs> and then blame it on him. And they saw me moving and hooked me out and then they patted me down and the guy felt it and he squeezed the baggie. Uh-huh. And wow. didn't do anything. And then I got to the station, and the arresting officer was there. And instead of being upset, I was – I'm sure uh-huh. I was over the DWI limit, but I was completely lucid and uh, tried to be as pleasant as I could and talk to him. And I told him it was my bachelor party e- evening, which <laughs> uh, it wasn't, but that's what I told him. And so somehow I managed to avoid the, the general stricture wow. they give everybody. Wow. And, and so I, that was that. And they, back then they put you into a diversion program mm-hmm. where I had to go to like an alcohol awareness class I see. for six weeks or something. So you dodged a career ending bullet with the guy who checked your pockets and squeezed the, the pot and did nothing. Right. And you were able to get through that by being a pretty nice guy at the station so they didn't do the strip search. You must have felt a terrific amount of relief, even though you had to do the uh, the program, the six-week program afterward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a complete disaster. It was... Yeah, there was only really one other time where I was ever that close, and that was when I was in law school. So that happens to you. In looking back, did you look at that situation and say, well, I better stop doing that? Or what? did you chalk that up to bad luck? Or how did you process that at the time? I chalked it up to kind of bad luck. Uh-huh. You know, I had done all kinds of crazy things. I drove my Volkswagen up the steps of the Jefferson Memorial once, oh and and a policeman, a park policeman, came out as I was driving down, and he was just enraged, <laughs> and he was screaming at me about how I couldn't do that, and I kept just screaming back. I said, "I'm trying to get to 95. Why don't you have signs? Where's 95 South?" And he pointed, and I just went that way, and that was that. So, oh my gosh, stuff like that. So, you know, so I just chalked it up as to bad luck because, you know, I'd had the pre-drinking before I was on my way to the real party when I got stopped. I think after the class, maybe I tried to slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't remember if if I did, it wasn't, wasn't much. Did they present options to you and was AA ever talked about or recommended in that program? I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm remembering right, they showed us as like the driving when they had driver's ed. Oh, yeah. They'd show you all those horrible crashes, mm-hmm. and there was uh, the guy that taught it was a very nice man. I think he was one of uh-huh. us that was teaching uh-huh. it, and he began as like you know I'm not going to say that you have a problem yeah. or anything like that, but you're here because you know it obviously caused you a problem yeah. and yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, most, most people there didn't, most people were young and they, they didn't take them seriously at all. And I, to me, it was just kind of a, what my penance for getting caught. So you were married, you had a child, you were working here in Houston. Can you kind of walk us up the road to 1996? Sure. So on my own in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. And... I actually started to load trucks again because uh-huh. we had bought this house and I had a new baby. And mm-hmm. I knew this guy who was a counsel for Pennzoil. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he and I got to know each other okay. And he had arranged for me to come down and interview with Pennzoil as, uh-huh. as general counsel. And so I came to right. Houston and did that. And at the time, I literally a couple of days before I flew in, Pennzoil got acquired by Texaco. Right. And... That changed the whole dynamic. They sent me up to New York to interview, and Mm -hmm. I blew that interview because I was too hungover. Oh, my. Uh Uh-huh. And so this guy knew a guy who knew a guy, 
And long story short, there was a small law firm in Houston that was uh-huh. doing, they, they did securities work. And they're creating a lot of limited partnerships for oil and gas exploration. And they Mm -hmm. had no one who knew oil and gas law. And Mm. so I told them I knew oil and gas law, which I didn't. Mm -hmm. I had had one course. Okay. But I talked a good enough game where I came down and they hired me. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1983. Mm -hmm. And so I moved down without my wife and son and moved down and lived here in an apartment I started working for them. Mm-hmm. And then right, sure. they came down after a year. And uh-huh. I worked for them from 1983 probably till 1994. Uh-huh. Then that firm basically exploded. Uh-huh. And I went with one of the partners. I went with him. And I was working mm-hmm. with him when I came into the program. So during that 11-year period, whenever your wife and child came down, you worked from 83 until 94. Was your drinking escalating or was it staying the same? Or had you created a pattern of drinking and working that sustained you through that time? Oh, it had escalated big time. And at 1986, you know, I, I remember people with Partners at work would comment on me drinking beer in the morning and stuff like that. Uh The only reason I was able to stay long was I was able to, you know, bill the hours. But in 1986, I got hospitalized Uh and went in and they did a heart thing, heart scan and all Mm -hmm. that. And they they put me directly into intensive care Hmm. and said that I had something called alcoholic cardiomyopathy. Hmm. It's basically where you're drinking so much it's attacked the heart muscle, your heart muscle. Hmm. And they said that I had destroyed between a quarter and a third of my heart muscle. Oh my gosh. And that I would never get it back. And one of the things I used to do was I used to love to run. And so I can't be an alcoholic. I can run six miles, you know? Right. Uh And they said I couldn't run I couldn't, you know, I needed to find a lower impact kind of lower stress job. Uh And so I was in intensive care for six days and then Uh got out and I stopped drinking and stopped running and cut my hours back. And Uh uh, I began slowly to jog and and run again. Uh Finally, after six months, I was with my wife and we went to a Rockets game and I thought, I'll have a beer. Hmm. And I did, and I was off to the races again. Wow. And it took a while this time. I was careful with it, and I'd only have beer, then I'd only have, would only drink on weekends, and uh-huh. it just gradually escalated through the next 10 years. But I had probably three or four years there where I was drinking, but not not crazy like it was before. So you became a temporary moderate drinker then for that for the period of three to four years? Probably a temporary heavy drinker, but yeah. A temporary heavy drinker, okay. But not alcoholic drinker. Okay, I get it. So after that period and you picked up again, you you went even further down the tubes at that point, huh? Yeah. Uh, so the law firm broke up and then I was working with this one guy. And by that time, by 95, 96, I was completely physically addicted. Hmm. You know, I was no longer drinking to make myself feel good. I was only drinking not to feel bad. I remember that while I could still type and I could Mm -hmm. still write, wrote some of my best stuff legally back Mm -hmm. then. My motor coordination was so gone, I couldn't sign my name. Oh, my goodness. You know, I would drink in the morning on the way. If I I didn't drink by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I would be... My clothes would be like plastered to my body. Hmm. I'd be in a cold sweat. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. To what did your disease attribute that to? Did you know that it was the disease that was doing it or were you convinced it might be something else? No, I knew that I was screwed. Uh, mm-hmm. I was at that place where everyone talks about is that, you know, you got to do something and should do something, but you can't. Huh. Uh, and physically, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, the cardiomyopathy that that you'd been diagnosed with 10 years before, did that come back or did that get worse or better? Uh, it seems to me if you had it then, another 10 years of heavy drinking, you would be dead somewhere along the way. Well, that's what was bizarre. So uh-huh. after I had that diagnosis and I was seeing the doctor all the time and uh-huh. all that stuff, 
I came in one time and I had started to run again and, and he did the scan and he looked at me with this look on his face and says, you're cured. Oh my gosh. And, you know, my wife and my son both attribute that to literally a miracle because oh this, this guy said I was, my heart was damaged and they had the test to prove it. And I was, huh. I was back, you know, and I was running stronger than ever before. Uh-huh. He couldn't explain it. And to me, of course, I thought, you know, in my craziness, I thought, of course I am. Why, uh-huh. why not? You know, I knew this wasn't going to keep me down. And yeah. so I didn't have that. I had what it caused was a, a, a fibrillation, an atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. That's what it left me with. And I have that to this day. In 95, 96, it's not the cardiomyopathy. You still may have had the atrial fibrillation, but it, it was other factors that were affecting you physically to the extent that you were shaking and having other physical problems, huh? When I finally went to see a doctor, uh, uh-huh. the only physical issues I had were evidently I had liver issues. The, the only physical issues I noticed were all alcohol-related. I see. Okay. Either either the shakes or the sweats or uh-huh. you know, whatever. I think I operated probably at well above the legal limit 24-7 by that time. Did you find that it was affecting your cognitive skills or were you were you still able to function cognitively? I was able to function cognitively. Yeah. That could have been a real curse at the time then, right? But what it did was I was very reticent about driving anywhere mm. because, you you know, if it was any distance to drive, I mm-hmm. knew I couldn't make it without drinking. Yeah. So you get to 95, 96. As I recall, you said something about being hospitalized. What what was that about? Or maybe you didn't. Maybe I've just heard that in your story over the years, and I just imagined you said it. <laughs> no, I was hospitalized again. Uh huh. It got to the point where the only thing I could think of to do was try to try and recreate what had happened in '86, uh-huh. which is where I had gone into the hospital in intensive uh-huh. care, mm-hmm. cleaned up, and came out, and I got like another ten-year license. To drink. Okay. And sure. so I went to a family doctor, my family doctor mm-hmm. who was a good guy, mm-hmm. and kind of told him what was going on. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to send me to treatment. But I insisted that the only thing I would let him do was to put me in the hospital for what I called gastroenteritis. I see. Yeah. And so that's what he did. I, I remember very well. I was admitted uh, on the, I think, July 30th. Uh-huh. And before I went into the hospital, I was sitting there in my car drinking a bottle of pop-off vodka uh, oh, straight out of the bottle. Uh-huh. And, you know, I finally went in and checked myself in. And they put me with a, some, a, a room with some guy that kept screaming, oh, my God. Oh, so I said, get me out of here. So they put me up in the oncology ward. Uh-huh. And I was there for the 30th, 31st, which was my first day sober. And I think I got out the first or the second. Uh-huh. You know, so they basically dried me out. They gave me Librium. And I remember that I, I was so huh. weak that I could not get out of bed by myself to go to the bathroom. So I'd have a guy come and help me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I got out, and they had like a doctor that specialized in livers came to see me, and so I had a uh-huh. appointments with him. And my uh, GP came in. I just remember him tapping me on this chest because he had finally understood what I was trying to do, and he said, "You're you're doing the right thing. This was the right thing that you did." Right. And, and I mm-hmm. got out, and I was just hmm. just lost. Just lost. I weighed 100, wow. 160 pounds, 155. Wow, which is, you were really skinny. So you get out. Three days later, did you still have the cravings? I mean... No, the physical cravings were gone. But, you know, I almost remember that time as less like this period of like, if you're in a desert where the sun is so bright, everything is white. Right. Uh-huh. And that's actually what I I've, I just felt like I'd been burnt clean. Hmm. And that hmm. was nothing really but a shell. I thought my life was over. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the liver doctor who told me that, I remember he said, if you drink again, you're going to die. You know, your liver tests are off the charts. Hmm. And even then my response was kind of like, yeah, sure. I've heard that before, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, I didn't try to drink, hmm. but I, I just thought, you know, this is just, you know, I'll, I'm too scared to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to continue on this bleak, mindless existence until I die. And not drink? And, and you know, see what happened. But I knew uh-huh. I couldn't drink. Something in me told me I couldn't drink then. Well, I couldn't hold anything down. That's why I'd really gone to the doctor in the first place, uh-huh. is I was unable to hold anything down. Wow. Even alcohol, I would have a hard time holding down. Uh-huh. And I was eating, like, bread and water. And mm. that was the only thing I could hold down. Hence my self-diagnosis for gastroenteritis. But uh, wow. the liver doctor, he developed a method of treatment, which was very successful with me. Mm-hmm. It was kind of experimental, but he got my liver function back to normal very quickly. Wow. And uh, But I couldn't eat for a while. And so I just kind of, you know, I was off work. Uh-huh. I was just kind of lost. So at that point, you mentioned that you, you were in a treatment center. How long were you there? So I had a client uh-huh. that... Uh, it was also a friend of mine uh-huh. that had gone to the club, he and his wife, uh-huh. and the next had a couple of their uh, Everclear margaritas, right. like 11. And then the next thing he remembers, there's a uh, Fort Bend constable next to him. They're way out in Fort Bend County, uh-huh. and he's nude, his wife is nude, and he's dragging her by the feet up this road. Oh, my God. And so they put him in jail, and... This was while I was still drinking. Uh-huh. Uh, they put him in jail, and his wife was wondering whether to press charges for domestic violence and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And it was all agreed, and I got a friend of mine who was involved. It was all agreed that she wouldn't if he went to treatment. Okay. And I went to see him there. Uh-huh. And so that I remembered that. Uh-huh. And so uh, maybe a week or plus so after I got out of the hospital, I went to treatment. So you went to the treatment center within days after getting out of the hospital? I want to say a week or two. So your sobriety date was within that first part of that well, week, right? You know, my sobriety date was the first night in the hospital. I, I count. Okay. As, I guess maybe I shouldn't because I was still on Librium. But that was the uh-huh, first sure. 24 hours I hadn't had alcohol. Okay. So you went from the hospital... To the treatment center uh, within the first week or about a week later. And how long were you at the treatment center? I I went and they wanted to do inpatient, and I said no. And so they accepted me as outpatient. So I did the outpatient thing, which was still like, what, three nights a week for three hours a night, then plus Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And I did Mm -hmm. that, and I actually found that I liked it. Was that your first exposure to AA then? Yes. Yeah. I see. And, I see. you know, I was with the, a bunch of girls who were in my group that were mainly nurses uh-huh. that had got caught for some pills and stuff like that. And so they, right. and this was uh-huh. also the time when, you know, insurance covered all this stuff and it was, they were springing oh, yeah, up sure. all over the place. But yeah, so I did that uh-huh. and. That's what eventually led me to AA. So you came to AA. Now, when you got out of the treatment center, were you sufficiently indoctrinated with what AA was about and the necessity of meetings to go on your own at that point? No, I was actually, I think, I don't know if I was out of the treatment center or still going, but it was at one of the Saturday morning kind of aftercare things that Mm -hmm. they insisted that I go to an AA meeting. And so my first mm-hmm. AA meeting was one night. Where people from the outside would come in, right? Well, yeah. Mainly guys trolling yeah. for, you know, Swansea's. Yeah. So I went to that and I enjoyed it. And I remember Mark P. insisted that I go mm-hmm. outside to an AA meeting and strongly mm-hmm. suggested Holy Name and absolutely mm-hmm. insisted that I get a sponsor. He said, don't come back mm-hmm. without one. And he impressed upon me. That, uh, which, you know, rightly or wrongly, I have followed is that I, I had to ask someone, you yeah. know, I, I should not take, accept yeah. a request to be someone's sponsor. I had to go up and introduce myself and ask. Right. And so I did not want to do that, but I did it. And that's how I ended up with Sam. 
Yeah. Well, that is an important thing to do. I remember there used to be a, an old timer for years. He would say, you have to wait for them to ask you because the process of doing that is a, a humbling experience and humility is what they need at that point. And they don't need to be enabled. They need to have some humility. So I get that. And that's pretty important to, to be asked. So you're going to AA now. And what are some of the the milestones along the way that severely challenged or uh, pulled at your sobriety in a way that you were worried about maybe slipping or? You know, I got to say, other than the normal issues pretty much anyone has when they first come in, which is their little things like mm-hmm. driving past the Seven Eleven and not stopping for a beer, yeah, uh, not going to the liquor store, yeah, not going to the bars, Right. That happened early on. I've gone through quite a bit. Uh huh. And I've never felt threatened. Uh, and, and for that, I have to thank wow. my, my That's great. sponsors, mainly Sam and then the fellowship. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. How about the spiritual end of the program? How has that worked for you over the years? I wish I were more spiritual. I don't feel spiritual. Yeah. Uh, I wish I believed more. It's an issue that I have. Right. So, you know, for me is, you mm-hmm. know, I go on about my life concerned about my own stuff and other people's stuff pretty much day by day. So I don't feel like I have mm-hmm. a super yeah. spiritual. I know there is one, but I don't feel it as much as I would like to. Yeah. I, I like to ask that question and I'm intentional about it because I don't want people taking a look or listening to your story and then making assumptions about what your spiritual life must be like. So I, I appreciate you saying what you said, and and we all have our own ways of working the program with regard to the spiritual end of it as well. The things that you've gone through while you've been sober and in AA, you've been able to get through them without seriously being challenged or feeling like you were in danger or perhaps away from the herd yeah, so I mean, I got divorced, mm-hmm. remarried. Yeah, I uh, lost both parents. Mm-hmm. We got you know flooded out, uh, and this issue latest, which is the worst one, with my son. Uh, and I've never really felt. Yeah, the old saying is, you know, what good is drinking going to do? Right. And the other thing I always fall back on is, if I thought a drink might do something. Right. I might be interested, but I have no interest in having a drink or two. Mm-hmm. I want like 40. And 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 I know where that goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not a good outcome certainly by by any measure. Then I like to also ask about any of the gifts that you can point to that you could look back on and say, if I hadn't been sober, I'm, I, this sort of thing would never have happened in my life. Honestly, pretty much everything, literally. I mean, forget, uh, yeah. I'd be dead, okay. but just for, even aside from <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. you know, I am right now sitting with my son in Mountain View. If I hadn't gotten sober, I wouldn't have that relationship mm-hmm. uh-huh. at all. Uh, I am happily married. Right. And uh-huh. I also get along very well with my ex. I would have none, neither of those relationships mm-hmm. at all. I was able to, my dad and I never really had mm-hmm. a bad relationship, but, you know, I felt I was able to tell him mm-hmm. before he died. He said, he said, how are you doing? And I was able to tell him with complete sincerity, the best I've ever done. And my mom got to see that too. Uh, hmm, so all beautiful. these things are, and my mom, my, my dad didn't really understand the program because wow. I remember he weighed white knuckled it and, and, but my mom understood mm-hmm. almost intuitively oh, yeah. uh-huh. and she was very happy. You know, I've got a uh-huh. relationship with my sister, which I never had mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. you know, a sister that was the bane of my existence growing <laughs> up is, you know, now we go on vacations together. Uh, I'm I'm happily uh-huh. married, and I have relationships with my stepdaughters yeah, yeah. and their husbands and their kids, my grandkids. All of this I mm-hmm. never would have had. And I'm healthy. I'm playing golf. I wouldn't wow. have had that. So literally, monetarily, 
you know, I was able to retire. You know, I went from having no money and owning uh-huh. the credit cards, 80 some thousand dollars uh-huh. to having money where I'm able to retire uh-huh. and, and fly out and see my son. And it's just crazy. That's it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And those gifts never stop coming when you stay sober and involved in the program. That's exactly, yeah. The beautiful thing that I've noticed about you over the years, Jim, is that you've always been a meeting maker. And of the people that I can usually count on to see in certain meetings, you're one of them. And I, the thing I've noticed in the past several years is with regard to one of your sponsees, just how important you have been in his life in helping him get through some very, very difficult things. And I, I sometimes think we're better off measuring ourselves by what impact we have on other people as opposed to what impact we have on ourselves. Yeah, I think that, you know, I've only ever sponsored two people and I kind of feel bad about that. But at the same time, I said, you know, only two people have ever asked me and both of them have been through you. One was Will. uh, And honestly, I didn't know what I was doing when I was trying Mm -hmm. to sponsor him. I had no freaking clue. But Will's so sober and he's fabulous. He's a fabulous guy. My other guy, you know, sponsee That's amazing. is still, you know, he, he and I talked the night before last and uh-huh. he's, he's doing, doing well. And he's had some significant uh-huh. challenges and he's, he's gone right through. And if I even had a little bit of that, that's yeah. a blessing for me. Well, yeah. And, and you've been, I know you've been a blessing in his life and, and it's been important to help keep you sober. You've been a blessing in my life, too. I, I want you to know that. You're a good friend and somebody who I feel good when I'm around. And it's so beautiful for us to finally be back at the point where maybe we can go into some of these live meetings again and get a chance to see eyeball to eyeball, sit knee to knee. That's always a good thing. It's been wonderful. Oh, it has been. You know, I, 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 when I see you, even before you began the, the reading, which I think is great, it's just like, this is kind of where I belong. This is going to be fun. And that's the way I feel. And that's the way you um, yeah, you, and yeah. you make me feel. It's like, especially some of the bizarre stuff we saw in the early meetings, you know. <laughs> oh, I know it. I know it. We, we both saw a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but a lot of those people are still sober. Some aren't. And uh, they work their programs as they work them. But I've always admired the way you've worked your program and... It's been a real honor and pleasure to share AA with you and know that it's having as big of an impact on your life as it is on mine. And uh, I'm thrilled that you were able to do this today. I knew I wanted to have you on. It's something I've known since I first contemplated doing this show. So thank you so much for doing this, Jim. This has just been a marvelous opportunity for us to get together. I love you and I respect you. And uh, The last thing I would add is... is Thank you for for asking me. Uh, I love you too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to think, you know, you ask about spirituality. You know, to think that I've I went from 155 pounds not able to eat solid food to where I am now, <laughs> eating too much has uh-huh. been a great journey. It's been a great journey. It sure has, and it's it's great to be on this road with you and. Again, many thanks. Absolutely, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Jim H. for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, may I ask your help in spreading the word on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media channels? You see, I'm pretty good at staying sober, but not so good at social media. I know there are many alcoholics out there who could benefit from this podcast if they only knew about it. So anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. That includes telling sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Everyone can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.